0: Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be, and welcome to the Super Travel Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and this is episode number 22, lucky t- number 22. If you're listening to this, you're going to have unlimited luck, prosperity, and happiness forever and ever. Thank you for, for joining me tonight. And we have a very special guest, a longtime friend, and uh, the first time I'm out here visiting him in Switzerland, this is Mr. The Great and Powerful, Timothy Dunham. Hi Tim. Hi Mark,
1: how are you doing? I'm good, Tim. Yeah, thanks for
0: not, having me on the show. Yeah, th- and thanks for uh, for you know showing me around and uh, let, let me visit where you live in Switzerland. It's like an amazing time that we had uh, earlier today. We uh, you showed me the mountain, the, a local mountain, and the, the beautiful lake and all sorts of cool stuff. And I'm really uh, honored to, to you know uh, for you to have host me and 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 to be here and to, to visit you. It's been a while uh, since I've seen you. Uh, if No one really knows us, but we've known each other for probably one of the longest times I've known uh, anyone. In, really? really. Like, Close to what thirteen years or so. Yeah. It's been uh well. We met doing triathlons. We weren't like super close friends, but we were more like acquaintances and almost like rivals, but friendly rivals. Right. And, uh, right around two thousand seven or eight, we uh, we were doing our triathlon. I think Long Beach triathlon. Yeah, it was that in the Long one? Beach.
1: Yeah, I started doing the Long Beach triathlon in two thousand five, and then I think we started competing against each other in around 2007 yeah around that around that time
0: i just i remember uh, seeing you a few times and you just just like being envious that you were so fast and you were ahead of me and i was like trying to catch you and i was like one day man i want to catch this guy and i was like getting closer and closer like a couple years later then one day catalina Triathlon... Right before the big hill, after the swim, the bike. Up towards the uh, botanical gardens, if I'm not mistaken. I, th- I think so. Right right before the big hill, I passed you. And then my life was complete at that point. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, I finally beat Tim. That, that's it. I'm retiring yeah. from the sport of track bonds. And you haven't really looked back since. <laughs> no, I, think the, I think the tables turned. I think that was the uh, the highlight. The, the, that was the highlight of, of my career. Of my career. <laughs> I mean, career. You know, it kind of went down after that. You no. Know? <laughs> No, it's great to
1: have you here in art, and uh, yeah, so we went up to Stos, Switzerland today. It's a really cool um, Swiss village up on the, up in the Alps, and so we took a funicular train. Is that what it's called? Funicular? Funicular. Funicular. Is that yeah. the
0: the Swiss pronunciation of it? or No, just... I believe
1: that's the, the proper term for it. Perhaps that's a... I don't know if it's a German word, but they use it in other places in the world, but it just implies that the train um, is not going flat and after a certain degrees, it needs assistance to go up the hill or up the mountain, if you will. So this particular train is, uh, I think it's the world record holding going at over 90 degrees vertical, which doesn't really sound quite right to me.
0: I th- isn't 90 like straight up? Yeah, out? 90
1: straight up. So I think it's a little bit less, but I'm not really it's sure. The
0: thing in the in the vernacular, it said like 110 degrees. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm not Does really
1: sure what sense? that meant. No, it doesn't make sense <laughs> to me. But, but I, what I do know is that it is a world record uh, inclination of a train in Switzerland. That's and it, what they say.
0: And it goes really high. I was looking at it a little nauseous to my stomach because yeah, I was kind of nervous. I, I was watching you closely. <laughs> yeah. But it was okay. It was okay. It was just like the bottom didn't move. It just... It, it went fast, but, like, the bottom didn't curve, or, you, you know. No, the,
1: yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain, but the, the platform, as the train uh, goes up the incline, the platform uh, is self-leveling, if you will. So the passengers inside are always standing on a flat, horizontal surface when the train is going on an inclination. It's really great, simple, but... Ingenious uh, engineering by the Swiss to build
0: this. Yeah, it was it's yeah. really genius technology. How long was that there? Was that relatively new? Is
1: it that that one, one only opened up last year. Last the, year. Yeah, this Whoa. particular train. Yeah.
0: Was that the one that cost like four hundred million, or that was the I city? I think it was something,
1: something like that. It was. It was in the Swiss newspapers quite often as uh, the big new uh, funicular train project. You know, there's trains all over these, all over the Alps, and they're always trying to put new cable cars or gondolas, trains to um, beautiful destinations to get, um, whether it's locals or tourists, up to these spots. And so this was just the latest addition of a long history
0: of trains and uh, Swiss transportation, if you will. And we're smack dab in the middle of the Alps right now in Art? Yeah, in, in central Switzerland. So we're
1: located right at the entrance of the central Su- uh, the central Alps, excuse me. Uh, you could say between Lucerne and Zurich in the canton
0: of Schwitz. You know. So there's what, 26 cantons, yeah, 26 like canton. states, almost like states.
1: Yeah, like in the U.S. it would be like a state. They're independent in their own way. There's, a, of course, a Swiss federal system, um, but um, rules, laws, taxes, all of those things are, are kind of disseminated down to a cantonal or a uh, state level, if you will, and then even further down into a village, village to village level.
0: Yeah, that's nice. I wish we had that more in the U.S. It sounds like it works and a little bit better and is more efficient and better for for everyone. Like you were you were explaining how northern and southern California are different regions and they they have different issues that need you know different uh, needs, different needs. Yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. Yeah, the the democracies, uh, the democratic process here in Switzerland is down to the village level, and so the inhabitants of that particular village can have the right to vote on, you know, whether it's public works, public works projects or um, taxes, all of these things, and so you can. It really allows them to decide what's best for them in their village, in their valley, in their mountain town, wherever there may be. Their needs, their um, their desires are going to be different from other people's, or from other villages in
0: other parts of the country. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And uh, what brought you to Switzerland? So uh, we were talking about it earlier, and I was I was trying to get a good idea, and you've been here a few years. Well, what made you leave California first? That, that I guess that's a good way uh, to start. Yeah. Like, like eight years ago. Huh? <clears throat> yeah, I
1: think the story you have to start back in two thousand twelve. Um, is when the story really kinda starts. And in 2012, I was working in Southern California in the uh, medical profession as an x-ray tech. VA hospital? At the VA hospital. That's the hospital Hospital. yeah I I used to go to. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, I don't know if I saw you there or not. Probably not. No. No.
1: Unless you're getting an operation or an x ray, (laughs) then I probably didn't see you. Yeah, so I started my career in Southern California at the VA in Long Beach and I was working there for about five years. And one day I got a text message from my best friend. And he, the message said, Hey, my brother, his older brother, who I also know, my brother wants to know if you want to move to Germany for a job. And my reply was, uh, let me check with my wife and I'll get back to you. You know? (laughs) And what, what ended up happening was that my best friend, his brother, um, had joined the army and became a doctor and became the director of the Chronic Pain Management Clinic in Germany at the Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Landstuhl, Germany. This is near the uh, US Air Force Base Ramstein and they kind of work hand in hand, the Air Force Base and the hospital serving not only service members overseas in Europe and in the Middle East and Africa, but also the rather large American community of people who live in this area. So we saw all um, all sorts of people. So I accepted
0: the job, or I took the job. What What excited you about it? Did you were you interested in traveling before then, or were yeah. you looking to move overseas? Or
1: yeah, I was actually for a long time for a lot of years. It had been a, a goal of mine to live and work in another country, and I didn't know. At the time, when I first kind of had this idea, this goal, I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know how that would work. When I chose my profession as an extra technologist, I knew that medicine wasn't going away. It was always going to be in demand and that I could do it pretty much anywhere in the world. Um, And that, I thought, would lead to opportunities.
0: And it did. And it did.
1: And I never could have imagined going to Germany to work at a U.S. Army hospital, but that's what was presented to me in 2012, that opportunity, and so I took it, and my wife and I made the decision together, and it wasn't necessarily an easy decision because it meant uprooting our lives from Southern California, from Long Beach, where we had built a a really strong community of friends, and I had a thriving photography art business at the time, so we left all of that and moved overseas you knew no
0: one in Germany you were just going I knew
1: I knew uh, my best friend's brother who was the director of the clinic who hired me I knew him and his wife um, but aside that we didn't know anyone so it was really I mean I remember looking up on Google like Google images like launch to Germany what does this place look like (laughs) you know like I mean, try to imagine a place you've never been and it's quite difficult. Like what's life going to be there? It's like,
0: a big unknown. Yeah. A little bit scary and intimidating. A little Absolutely. Bit,
1: huh? Absolutely. Especially coming from Southern California where I'd spent 90% of my life. Um, I didn't know what the seasons would be like. I've never lived in an area that had snow or, you know, like really uh, strong winter seasons.
0: Um, yeah okay. california is one like w- one season all year round
1: yeah. I, I always tell jokingly tell people here in europe that california has 1.25 seasons <laughs> it's it's sunny and warm and then maybe you need a sweatshirt a little less warm yeah a little, <laughs> yeah, less warm. A little, right. little
0: cloudy a few sprinkles every now and then it sprinkles people run inside and like oh my right, god right right makes the news <laughs> yeah makes the news yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so we were excited to, to take the adventure into the unknown, and I really didn't know what, would, what Germany would hold for us, but
0: um, we went for it. And uh, it's been eight, eight years now, and we haven't looked back. And you, you worked in Germany for five years, and then from there you moved to Switzerland. Mm. And what brought you to Switzerland from Germany? Another a job opportunity or change of careers?
1: Well, it was uh, really my wife who, while we were living in Germany in 2014, she got a job opportunity in Switzerland. And so, uh, given the circumstances of our lives at that time, it made sense for her to take this job. It was a good opportunity I me. It was kind of like a foot in the door into Switzerland. And we were thinking beyond our, my five-year contract in Germany at the hospital. And so she took the job and moved to Switzerland. Well, I still had two years left on my contract, at least two years left on my contract in Germany to finish out as a federal employee. So for a couple of years, she lived in Switzerland, I lived in Germany. And a couple times, three times a month, we would commute back and forth to see each other. How far far is that? Yeah, by train, it's about five and a half hours. Oh, that's
0: not that bad, actually. Five and a half? Maybe I a think week. some
1: people drive that far to work in LA sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, every morning every rush, rush hour morning, traffic. Absolutely. Ten miles and go. Five out. Yeah. hours and ten miles.
1: Yeah, it's not that far. I mean, it's definitely doable. But on a Friday night after work, you know, to go get on a train or or drive the car uh, about a similar time, five six hours. Yeah. And then return Sunday to be back to work on Monday. It's rough. It's it's a it's a tough go, especially when you're trying to foster and and cultivate a relationship and and. You know also experience the places that you're living so it was it was pretty neat though she was living in switzerland and so when i would come down we would go and explore switzerland doing hikes and climbs and and all sorts of adventures together and i think that that time period it was like a good trial period it's not exactly how we would want it to would have wanted it to work out but it gave us the opportunity to see if we liked switzerland if we thought the opportunity for her job and everything was was solid enough for me to resign from federal service from the from the working for the military and move full
0: time to Switzerland. And and I I think you did like it because you're here now. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, so at the end of my contract, it was it was down to the wire. You know, does Gina re- resign to? back to Germany or do I resign and move to Switzerland and thank goodness Switzerland won out because we're really happy to be here
0: did you like how was Germany how does Germany compare to Switzerland how did you like Germany or uh, you uh, I think you love Switzerland more I think right
1: yeah I get asked this question quite a bit you know which one did you like better did you like Germany or do you like yeah, Switzerland yeah. and well the truth of the matter is I love the mountains and I love lakes and beauty and while Germany is very beautiful, and there's a lot of opportunity there for adventure, being in the Alps, in the Swiss Alps, is kind of, is is a dream. It's it's something that I never really even thought to make a goal, because I almost didn't think that it was feasible. Like, how does someone, how does a guy who grew up in Southern California make it all the way to Switzerland, you know? That, that was something I couldn't have imagined before it happened. So... I'm very happy to be
0: here. I mean, just being here, it's like you're in a dream. It's a magical, amazing, beautiful place. That's it's just surreal to be here myself. I mean, you look around. There's mountains, greenery. It's the lake. It's it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. I, I definitely have to wholeheartedly agree. I was here a couple years ago, driving with my mom, on a on a trip and. We're just in awe driving through the Alps, and even my mom. I have a video of her. She's going, "Oh wow!" And like that moment, like almost brought tears in my eyes because that was such a beautiful moment. I got to see my mom, see and appreciate, and just mesmerized by the beauty of, of Switzerland, the Alps, and and that. Yeah, I, I I'm glad uh, glad you you're here, and you you really you love you know uh, you love it here and. Um, you're doing what you love too. You followed your passion, which was rock climbing
1: yes. and mountain
0: climbing. <laughs> and uh, that, wh- what got you started? You, you've been doing that a long time, right? The ra- uh, rock and mountain climbing. You were telling me that you stopped doing triathlons and uh, started getting more into that rock and mountain climbing back in, was it California?
1: Yeah, it was in California. Well, I mean, you've done triathlons and biathlons and you've, you've, you're you a trainer, you're someone who likes to train, so yeah. you know and understand like how much time that training takes or can take if when you're really kind of into it. And so I started rock climbing doing triathlons actually the same year. And, you know, I have a lot of interests and I'm always trying to put my energy into new things and challenge myself in those ways. And after about three, four years, I really found that I liked rock climbing a lot more. There's a lot of things about doing triathlons that I love. I love the cross training with the swimming, biking, running. Those are all um, very valuable training um, exercises to do, and I still do some of them today. But um, rock climbing really captured
0: my heart. Like, what What's it about rock climbing that captures it?
1: Well, There's a there's sense of it's you... I don't want to say verses, but it's you and nature. It's like nature created the earth, created these rocks, and you go and test yourself against these rocks. And either you climb to the top, maybe you don't make it to the top, but either way, it's just you and the rock. It's you and the mountain. And sometimes, um, like I said, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. And by win, I mean... Make it to the top. Make it to the top. And that's not always... I mean, that's oftentimes the goal. But being successful isn't solely reliable on making it to the top, right? Because it's, I find that it's often the, the journey, the whole process of the, of the climb or of a route, that um, a climbing route that is and can make a whole trip successful. The people that you're with, the the whole process of figuring out how to do it and testing yourself. And sometimes you make it and sometimes you don't. And I've had I've had great times with my partners in both scenarios, where we've succeeded and where we have failed. It makes me think of, uh, I was climbing the Monk which is a famous mountain here in central Switzerland near Grindelwald and my partner and I climbed it in a day and we got Within eighty meters of the summit, on the summit ridge, but the wind was so horrendous and the snow conditions were pretty bad, that, eighty meters from the summit, we just said, we got to turn around. Like, too dangerous. It, too dangerous. Yeah. I mean, if you don't make it home at the end of the day, like you definitely don't win. You you got to make it home, and so in that moment, it's like, almost no question. Uh, there was a very clear understanding between him and I that to continue those next 80 meters uh, the consequences if something went wrong in those 80 meters were too high to justify 80 more meters and so for me on that particular climb if somebody wants to say well you need to put an asterisk next to that climb because you didn't summit, fine put an asterisk whatever it's yeah. just a scribble on a piece of paper you know it was the whole climb the whole day with that partner that just made it a fantastic adventure and in my opinion and i think i can speak for him as well it was a total success so it's not always about getting to the top it's about the people that you go with the experiences that you have the challenges you face how you overcome those challenges in the moment
0: that's like a metaphor for life
1: it is it really is and I, i really feel like there's so much about rock and mountain climbing that can um Provide you with skills mindsets and tenacity determination that help you in life i found that to be true for me and also learning to uh, suffer a bit because sometimes it's cold sometimes it's windy sometimes it's snowing you don't know where you're at you're lost you're yeah understandably a little bit scared well isn't that kind of life
0: you know <laughs> yeah yeah I always uh, think about sport as like uh, an inoculation for life. Mm. So when life knocks you down, sport kind of like helps prepare you a little bit for it mentally, for the suffering and the difficulty. And The people that don't have sports in their life, they, I've, I've, it seems like they get hit harder and can't deal with it as well as like the person who's, you know, more uh, trained and more, um, you, you know. More adapted to suffering. Yeah. And overcoming, yeah. adapting to a circumstance
1: finding a way to overcome it and strive forward.
0: I, one of the, the things I've been uh, thinking about uh, the last few months is like, there's a quote I, I have stuck <clears> in my head, perseverance overcomes all obstacles. And it kind of reminds me of that in a way. It helps you persevere. Sport helps you persevere. And, well, I would agree with And that. for life in general too. And, you you had an accident uh, when about eight months ago was it? Yeah, around eight January ago,
1: twenty in January two thousand nineteen.
0: Something happened when you were climbing, and it wasn't good. No, yeah. that was
1: a uh, a really nightmare type of scenario for any mountain climber, any kind of climber to have um, an accident like this. It was uh, definitely life changing. I describe it to some people. It was like, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you about it in a moment, but it was like an exclamation point at the end of a chapter in a book, but then you wake up and you're in a completely different book. And by that I mean, and this doesn't have to necessarily happen in the mountains or on rock or ice. It can happen in life with a car accident or, or any kind of injury or illness in life. Um, all of a sudden your whole paradigm has shifted. And that's what happened to me on that day
0: in January. Yeah, that, that, that's incredible, man. I, yeah, I can't imagine. I, I'm, uh, it's hard to, like, I, I vaguely know what happened. All, what I think I know is there was an avalanche or, or something, and you got caught up into it and suffered really major injuries, spinal injuries, stuff that, like, like that scares me and seems like um, it would be... Uh, something I don't know that I could even deal with or how I could imagine to deal with, with something like that. Could, could you set up a, a little bit of, of like how it was, like um, the day, what, what you were climbing, um, how, who was with you and like yeah. that sort of...
1: Yeah, I can, so to kind of set the scene, we were in Engelberg, Switzerland, which is about an hour away from Lucerne. It's a valley up in the Alps, uh, home of Mount Titlis.
0: 3,200. Titless? Titless. Titless. Yeah. Th- n- no uh, relationship to tit? No, no anything. relation to <laughs> anatomical parts. Okay, okay, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, uh, it's, it's one of our favorite valleys to go adventuring. For climbing for Clutterstock, skiing, snowshoeing. I mean, it's a typical, I guess what we would call a typical Swiss valley. It just Adventure around every corner. So I was with uh, two of my best partners, uh, Dylan and Scott. And these guys I've done a lot of adventures with. And we were actually in the valley for a ski free riding course the following Monday, the following day, actually. So we had, we, we had arrived on Saturday, had a great day skiing on the mountain, stayed overnight in a mountain hut, which are scattered all over the Alps. And I can tell you about those later. But we stayed overnight, had a really fun time together, eating with all these other uh, people who like to adventure in the mountains, had a great day, great evening. The next morning, we skied down, down to the back, to the, to the bottom of the valley. And we still had the afternoon free. And this was Sunday afternoon now, January 27th. And so we thought, well, of course, like let's go ice climbing. It's January the ice should be good. It's been really cold all of the, the the couple of weeks leading up to this day, so that's what we did. We we did the duffel shuffle, as we say, <laughs> got our gear ready, stopped by the uh, local mountain shop and checked in, got the guidebook, talked to the locals, and and to find out how the conditions had been, if it was okay to go, or if they thought it was good to go, which and, they did, and it seemed safe. Everything was fine. Like there was no. Well, safe is a is a very relative term in the mountains. Yeah. So we like to say it was um, safe enough. Safe enough. Or the conditions were such that we thought it was safe to go or safe there's, enough.
0: Is there always a little bit of danger when, when you're climbing? Is that- well,
1: so what we had decided to do that day, that afternoon, was to go ice climbing. Now, ice climbing, unlike climbing rocks or, or just climbing a mountain or going for a hike, ice is very is its own um, beast, if you want to say that. It can be very finicky sometimes. The conditions need to be right. The ice needs to be um, set up just right. It needs to be really cold, which it had been, actually. Um, the day that we went, it was approximately minus 7 minus seven Celsius. And the guys at the mountain shop had told us, yeah, it's been you know, well below
0: freezing. Um, the whole week and a couple weeks leading up to this. So if it gets too warm, it could, it could slide or not. Right. Is that so what we, it was? Yeah, so or, what
1: we were doing, we were climbing a frozen waterfall. So if you imagine a waterfall in the summertime and it's gushing water and it looks beautiful and it's spraying mist everywhere, well, imagine that waterfall frozen. And wow. over the course of the winter, that water is still dripping down the waterfall and so it's constantly growing or or, um, setting up and when a waterfall becomes thick enough uh, the ice becomes solid enough then um, that's when people start to look at it to ice climb so there's there are definitely uh, certain criterias within the ice itself that you want to investigate Mm -hmm. before you um, before you start climbing and you know there's a lot of um there's a you could say there's a checklist of of things that you need to check mitigate as much as you can and then base your decision on whether or not you think it's safe enough to go so we had done our 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 due diligence we had checked the conditions the temperatures had been cold the ice itself in the particular area that we decided to climb in um, look to us to be of good quality, so it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't just a harebrained idea. Um, oh, let's just go ice climbing. You've it done was, it. You've done it before. Huh? Yeah, yeah, this was this was my second season ice climbing. Uh, full disclosure, my second season ice climbing. My two partners, one Scott, it was his first season ice climbing. So he was a he was newer than I was, but um, I'm not that far ahead of him. And then Dylan, he was really is really the leader, kind of the mentor for ice climbing. He's been climbing over 10 years. And so we, in this situation together, but then also kind of look to him for some leadership. And he is more than comfortable and capable and has enough experience to, to have that role, to take on that role. And But we make decisions together because it's all three of us, we're a team. And so we all decided to go together. So it wasn't, um, it was very calculated, you could say. So we had chosen to go to a place called Bodeman, Bodeman Waterfall. And it's in the back of the valley in Ingelberg, near the funeral, funeral, funeral. Gondola station,
0: you yeah, try and say in that fast. I can't say any of the words. Yeah, here. yeah I, they're, they're, I, get, I get confused with stus or stus, stoes. Yeah. Stoes or sways yeah. and sways. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I gotta live here a couple months, but I might get yeah. a couple words in.
1: It's not so easy. <laughs> well, the, the name is kind of irrelevant in some ways, unless somebody wants to look it up. Um, but we had chosen to go to this area because it was easy access. Uh, the guidebook calls it um, to have. Um, describes it as having a climbing gym feel. Because of of the easy access, there's uh, multiple routes to choose from. The tallest of the routes being about 130 meters high. And so when a route is that long, our ropes aren't that long. So you have to climb it in multiple stages or what we call pitches. And those are, you could say, a rope length long. And at that rope length, then you have to Kind of move your move yourself and your partners up to that point and then you can kind of continue up and, and move up the ice well this particular day you know we had started around one in the afternoon and you know being January it was going to be getting dark
0: it's a win- winter time yeah it's yeah. winter
1: yeah it was full on winter and it was cold I mean it was like I said minus seven overclassed with some patchy clouds there had been a storm you know the previous probably three days so um, you know, when we got out of the car, we parked, got out of the car, uh, before we headed in, it just felt like ice climbing conditions, which is cold. The like chilly, yeah, chilly. Yeah, not just, not just chilly, but like kind of burn your nose kind of uh, cold, like when you breathe in deep and, you know, that's not so comfortable, but as an ice climber, that's what you're looking for because then you have, um better assurance that the ice is going to be solid and and hold together. So yeah, we headed in and uh, set up to go ice climbing after we investigated the ice and, uh, kind of determined which route we were going to climb. We kind of set up base and, um, headed up the ice. And so what that looks like is one person goes up first. And because we were limited on time, we were only going to climb one pitch or
0: one rope length. So you're climbing a frozen waterfall. Yeah, frozen waterfall. And is it big? How wide is it? Is it? Because I picture a waterfall not that big, width wise.
1: Really. Right. It depends on which waterfall you're looking at. But what happens is the water starts to freeze as it goes down, and so it hits the. It, oftentimes, is free falling, and then it hits the bottom, and as it's freezing, as that cold freezing water lands on it it continues to grow and so it grows basically from not always but from bottom up or sometimes it'll also freeze at the top and then it'll kind of join in the middle i don't know if that makes sense yeah yeah that makes sense now and then because now it has this uh, column of ice where the waterfall is now it starts to grow in all directions so it can can grow to the you know, to the sides or to the front. And so this particular waterfall that we decided to climb, you could say of climbable area was approximately, yeah, two two to three meters wide, or you could say six to eight feet wide. Almost like
0: the length of a car, almost.
1: Yeah, like a small a small yeah. car. You could say that the width of a car was a good climbable area of good ice for climbing yeah and we had, we had looked at the ice and there's a lot of like really specific things that you look for in the ice you don't want you don't want that white uh, cloudy ice because what that represents is more air pockets in the ice and it hasn't had time to consolidate when you see a glacier and you see that really rich cobalt blue deep inside and, yeah. it, and it just looks like a, a sheet of ice that's because because of the pressure of, of the glacier, because of the ice or whatever is pushing on it, it pushes all of those air pockets out and it consolidates the water molecules closer together, thus making it stronger, more robust, and um, better for climbing because it's going to stay together. And it looked, it looked really good. It looked, it, like, like I said, it, the conditions of the ice looked... We all approved Yeah. Uh, We all thought that it was um, in good enough condition uh, to climb. And once we started sinking our ice axes into it and kicking our crampons into it, um, it felt good as well. And you all go together at the same time? No, that's a good question. So one person leads, leads the route. And by leading, I mean they climb first. And this could get into some nuances of how you climb a route first and how you get the rope up to the top. That's one of the classic questions is well how do you get the rope up there (laughs) yeah yeah well somebody has to climb up first and as they go up the route they're putting ice screws into the frozen waterfall into the ice and these ice screws have little um, basically a place to uh, hook to hook your carabiner to uh, or a quick draw as we call them and then from with those carabiners then you can clip your rope you put an ice screw in you clip your rope and then you continue climbing up so your last point of contact is below you and that's if you fall you're going to fall the the length that you're above that piece and then you're going to fall the equal distance below
0: it yeah that makes sense have you have you fallen before i have you have this is scary well certainly yeah Yeah, i mean it it takes your breath away
1: i mean i've fallen on ice ice climbing before which is a big no-no um i did that once what why is it a no-no Oh, for a number of reasons, but mainly because you can get really hurt Uh, and you can break your, you can break your legs really quick because you're wearing crampons with these pointy tips on them. um, If you fall, those can snag into the rock or excuse me, into the ice. And as you're falling, that's a lot of uh, velocity, a lot of kinetic energy. And if all of a sudden your ankle, um, one of those crampon tips snags the ice, it can snap your leg really quickly. Oh. So falling while ice climbing, um, is a big no, no, but, um, that particular day, Dylan led the route. So he went up, put the ice screws in and he took the rope up with him and he got uh, about 35 meters up. And I know it's 35 meters up because it was the entire length of the half of the length of the rope. And when I say half of the length of the rope, is that because we were only gonna climb one pitch or one rope length, he's gotta be able to climb up, build what we call an anchor, so a safety point where the rope can be attached at the top, and then also have enough rope or equal distance rope to be lowered back down.
0: And you guys just had enough rope for that?
1: Right, so the, the route was just 35 meters and we had a 70 meter rope. So that's how we knew that the that from the base of the climb to where the anchor was set was 35 was thirty five meters, which is uh, a good a good size for a route, uh,
0: a, a good pitch, as we would call it. What's 35 meters? About 90, uh, 80 feet? A little feet? over 100 feet. 100 feet, 100-something yeah. 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 feet. I could, uh, yeah, it's pretty high. It's a 10-story building. I hadn't it's really like thought about it in those terms, like but that. yeah, you're right. It's pretty high up. It is high.
1: It's high enough that communication becomes really difficult, uh, especially... When you have, um, terrain that either uh, moves into the wall and it, and then you have snow and ice all around you, and snow is a great sound dampener. Have you ever been? if you ever been in a, in snow like in the woods, and there's no wind or anything, and it just sounds yeah, deafening yeah, silent. Yeah. It's because you have this really great audio or acoustic insulator all around you, absorbing all of those sound waves that are bouncing. So instead of bouncing off rocks and, and hard surfaces, it's being absorbed by that snow. So communication while ice climbing can can become very difficult, sometimes impossible. So are you,
0: you're you yelling, you don't have like a microphone or no. like headphones or something that...
1: In other situations we've done that where we've brought uh, walkie-talkies with us. Um, but in this particular scenario, you know it was an afternoon. We knew that we, were, our plan was to only climb one pitch, and the number one way to avoid problems of miscommunication is that before anyone leaves the ground, the climber and the person belaying them, the person holding the other end of the rope through their um, belay device on their harness, that's what keeps the rope safe and keeps them from falling. Um, you have a discussion and you come up with a plan what are we going to do what are you going to do when you get to the top what am i going to do when you get to the top am i going to lower you down are you going to repel what's you come up with your plan so that there almost needs to be no communication whatsoever because as soon as you start to try to communicate that's when miscommunication can occur and that's when accidents happen so having in rock climbing, ice climbing, mountain climbing, it's about having a plan before you leave the ground to limit the need for communication. Of course, sometimes you have to communicate, and that will come into play later in this story. But um, in this particular scenario, there wasn't much need to communicate with Dylan when, while
0: he was climbing the route first. Would you consider what you're about to you know, talk about one of the most impactful moments of your life? It's funny that you were used the word impactful. Um, um, I, I, that's I uh, didn't mean that on purpose, but one of the most, yeah. um, I don't know, important experiences or life-changing moments that we're all about to above. get into. Yeah, absolutely. All of the above. Yeah,
1: all of the above. This is something I've never myself been injured in this type of way or this severely. I've never been... Um, with another partner or in a situation where somebody else has been hurt this severely, it was new to me and it was new to my partners. Like this, like you said, was life-changing, is still currently life-changing, kind of in the most painful, terrifying, kind of horrendous way. Um, Yet, saying that, when we go into the mountains, especially when you're going ice climbing, ice climbers know that it's It is inherently dangerous, right? We do our best to come up with plans and check conditions and mitigate the risk, but
0: you can never mitigate the risk with nature altogether. Just hearing on the news Mount Everest, you hear about people dying all the time. I mean, yeah, that's,
1: I think that's a really extreme example. I mean, not just because Everest is an extreme environment, um, but the amount of fatalities that occur in the mountains, not just from um, novices or or tourists making bad decisions to get that great selfie shot. But from, (laughs) from world-class athletes, world-class alpinists who, um, have years, sometimes decades of experience in the mountains. Um, I mean, there's, I could list, it would probably take me two hands two hands of fingers to list all the people who have died just in the last two years of world-class athletes. And those are just the people that I know about
0: who have died. Is that part of the allure, that danger aspect of it? Is that part of what makes it so amazing and, and great was that it is dangerous? I mean, I think the like danger... like extreme sports. There's that dangerous element. I mean, the risk of dying is, is part of it. it.
1: There is the risk of dying, and I think people who participate in these types of sports, we understand, cognitively, we understand that those risks, and that is always a possibility. You could privy it, or you could, you could, in some ways, and I'm, you know that the dangers are there. You, like I said, you try to mitigate the risks as much as possible. There's a, there's a small sense of, well, it's not gonna happen to me, or you're more concerned that it's going to happen to your partner than you're concerned that it's going to happen to you. And it's not so much that it's the adrenaline of it's dangerous, it's death-defying. It's more, it's the adrenaline Adrenaline, of living. It's like you're going to do these activities. It makes you feel alive. You are... In those moments when you're in the mountains, when you're in a, in a serious, um, pursuit of an objective and by objective, I mean, whether it's a rock climb or a hike or climbing a mountain, there is an allure of that objective, right? And to go and attempt it, there is almost no other situation in life where I feel more centered, more connected and more focused on the task in front of me and the purpose of my life in that moment it's like it's like a zen a zen state huh? you could call it um the flow state flow state absolutely absolutely you get into this flow state and when you're in a flow state uh, which flow states can be reached in all sorts of mediums right it's not just in the mountains but sports are a great way sports to are reach a great that. flow state yeah but Creative and artistic pursuits can um, create flow state. Music. Uh, Music. Uh, Even some of the surgeons that I've worked with in the hospital over the years, watching them perform surgery, they are absolutely 100% in a flow state. I've seen a surgeon operate for nine hours straight and without going to the bathroom, without eating, without drinking water, and they are 100% that is their purpose in life at that moment. And time ceases to exist. Other concerns, other worries, other other things are irrelevant in that moment. And you feel that moment. I mean, you, that is reaching that flow state. That's, those are some of the moments in which you can bring you the most joy in life because you're performing something at your best right it's like all of that training all of that energy uh, you know not necessarily was for this moment only but it's a manifestation of all of that work and energy it's it's as if you know when you're doing one of your your one of your races one of your 10ks or duathlon whatever it may be doing all of that training that you do for weeks and months leading up to it and then you know, you've got that pit in your stomach when you're standing on the line and the gun's about to go off. And maybe you're a little bit nervous and you don't really know what's going to happen. And then that gun,
0: you know, goes off. And you're in the flow state. And you you're get into the state. And all of that goes immediately away and you are in it. 100% in the moment. Yeah. Just, you're not thinking, you're just acting, you're just doing, you're just... You're doing what
1: you've trained for. You're doing what you have set out to do, which is run that race. You're achieving you're you're working towards achieving a goal that you've set your mind to whether it's oh i want to i want to do this particular race or i want to climb that mountain as soon as you set off you're in it and that is one of the most amazing and i think best ways to really experience life so it's not death defying it's not yeah i have to
0: agree wholeheartedly agree yeah i has that been your experience with yes. uh, races and sports, sports? in general? Makes you so it almost makes you feel alive when you're at a race. It's 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 amazing. Like like you said, when the gun goes off, you're just you're like in a different different world, different state. But it's I don't know. It's the flow state. It's hard to explain. It's like the the towel. that which can be told is not the eternal towel. You can only be experienced. You know, something right. like that. You yeah. could only experience it, and definitely. Uh, so you guys, were you guys in the flow state as you're beginning the climb or you're like getting into it?
1: Yeah, I think we were we were getting into that flow state, if you will. So the way it was set up was Dylan was going to climb first. And so there's only one person in this scenario. There's only one person climbing at a time, as there often is in a rock climbing or a ice climbing scenario.
0: Is it because like there'd be too much weight if there's three people in that sort of thing, you know? like.
1: Well, somebody has to stay on the ground to belay them to hold the other end of the rope. Okay. And when I say hold the other end of the rope, again, this can get into the nuances of what it takes to climb something, but somebody has to hold the other end of the rope and make them safe. And you, you can use different devices and uh, to do that, but somebody has to go and lead the route first. And once they lead the route, they can put the rope at the top, and then come back down. Now you have an anchor at the top and the rope is set at the top. Now the other people can climb on that rope, but the rope is already at the top, so there's there's actually less danger because now as you climb up and the rope goes up, the person who's holding the other end of the rope is pulling in that slack and keeping the rope tight. So you're not going to fall. Um, very far because they can they can keep the, rope the guy tight.
0: the the man at the top is holding keeping it tight.
1: Well, the man so at the bottom. So the man, yeah. So the person at the bottom, the belayer at the bottom would be standing at the bottom. Now, of course, there's different techniques to do it. You can you could belay from the top of the route, or you can belay from the bottom of the route. We were, were you the second man to go. Right, I was. So the plan was Dylan was going to climb the route first, which is generally, especially in ice climbing, the more dangerous, the little bit more. Takes a little bit more head to uh, uh, climb on lead because there's a bit more risk. Because if you fall, you're falling on these ice screws. You know, the rope's not already set at the top for you. So, Dylan being the, the leader, the more comfortable one, I was more than happy to give him the, the lead. So, I was set to climb second, and then, um, so Dylan was climbing. Our other partner Scott was belaying him because we were a party of three so that gave me time to prepare so that's kind of how it works if there's three people the first person climbs the third person climbing will belay them so it gives the second person time to prepare so as soon as that second that first climber is down the second person is ready to go can tie into the rope and start climbing
0: do you do you psych yourself up like before you go on on you know climbing do you listen to music do you like have some motivational self-talk do you do anything like that before because I know like before I work out I like to listen to music it helps me get into like the flow state sometimes mm-hmm. I'll dance and move mm-hmm. and like sing sometimes I mean do, yeah. you, do you do anything you have music maybe or something no
1: and actually I, I no I don't I don't have, I don't have any so let me clarify I don't have anything to get me psyched up so to say um, yeah. I, I could start by saying that everybody has their own method to get ready for whatever it is that they're doing. Like your ritual? Your ritual, ritual. whatever gets you psyched up or whatever gets you in the headspace needed to attempt the task in front of you, right? Uh, For me, I've never been one... I never run with music in my ears. I never cycle with music in my ears. I want to hear my breath. I want to hear my footsteps. I want to be... For me personally, I want to be kind of present. And in particular with rock climbing, I do more visualization than I do anything else to get me psyched up. And what I mean by that is I'll look at the root, whether it's rock or ice, and you're gonna visualize yourself going up. Like, what's what's the root? Where's the line in the ice? Or where's the line in the rock that you're gonna take? Like, what holds? Okay, that hold looks good. How would I grab that hold? Well, I'm going to do that. Okay, well, what, where could I put my feet in that moment? And I will, if if it's possible in the moment, I will try to visualize myself climbing the entire route before I even climb it. So when I arrive to this point now, of course, my point of view is is from below, right? I don't have the luxury of having already climbed it and seen it firsthand. So what you see from the ground, you can kind of visualize. So I do a lot of visualization techniques uh, so that when I get into or on a route, I've already in my mind, to the best of my ability, I've already climbed it. And then furthermore, with that visualization, I'm going to routinely or I will also visualize what I do in various situations. If A happens, what do I do? If B happens, what do I do? If there's an emergency, what do I do? Well, I should mention something about the emergency planning later, um, about this whole scenario. Yeah. But, um, I play through all of those things. What am I going to do when I get up to the anchor? Like, what are the, what are all the steps that I have to do to keep myself safe, to keep the route safe, to, uh, uh, um, keep the route safe, but to keep myself safe on the route and all of these contingency plans. So I do a lot of visualization that way. And I have found for myself that that helps to relieve not only any nerves that I have,
0: but also when I'm in it, it's as if I've already been there. That seems to be a common theme with the successful people. I mean, Kip Cho, who just ran sub-two hours for uh, the marathon this past weekend, he visualized that end, that he broke two hours. He knew he could do it. He visualized it over and over. Mm -hmm. He just... And it seems to be really common, you know, successful-wise, for successful people to do that, that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so you were second coming up. And, yeah. Uh, he made it already. He made it. Yeah, so Dylan
1: had climbed the route. He put the rope up top and built this anchor. And so the rope was at the top, and so I was set to climb second. I do want to say that before we headed in, as we were heading into the route, like in, um, on the approach... We had, um, from a distance, we had a really great view of the whole wall and we could kind of see where we were going and uh, and what we were going to climb. And it was at that point that we also had like our little safety meeting, like how are we going to protect ourselves and what are we going to do in case of emergency? And I am really diligent and my partners are as well. having that conversation before we uh, start an objective because like I said you need to make a plan before you leave the ground and that also goes for well what if uh, things go horribly wrong what's the plan and that was needed for this day turns out that that that, time that two minute conversation that we had came into play later on and it was two minutes because we all already had a clear understanding of, of normal emergency type procedures if someone if if something happens if someone gets injured and in our for our in our case in this situation the first plan was to use the cell phone to call Riga and Riga is the Swiss helicopter rescue service that has twelve stations around the country with helicopters that are staffed with obviously pilots um, an anesthesiologist a doctor and a paramedic and. Uh, For about 90 plus percent of the rescues that occur in Switzerland, Riga are the ones who um, will go and perform the rescue, sometimes in conjunction with uh, mountain guides or other rescue services who are needed in a particular situation. So that was our first, our plan A, was to call Riga. If we didn't have cell service or if we couldn't get through to them for some reason, I always carry with me in my backpack a, a spot device. If you know what that is, it's a, uh, it's a location beacon. So a satellite, satellite location beacon. So no matter where you are in the world, if you have satellite service, satellite service. If, if the device can communicate with satellites, and by that I mean it's not you know there's not a big storm overhead like you have a, hopefully a clear view of the sky, you can press this S O S button, and it sends automatically transmits via satellite, a message. A pre written message, basically an SOS message, to a um, center somewhere in the world. And then the people at that center, where it's staffed 24 7, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, then they will coordinate with local rescue people to then carry out the rescue. They say, We, we got a signal, an SOS distress call at these coordinates, they need a rescue. The problem with that particular device, or the one that I have, they have other models that allow real-time SMS messaging. My particular device doesn't have that, but um, you press the SOS button, but it doesn't tell the people what's wrong, or what the accident is, or what the situation is. So in this particular situation, the, the cell phone was plan A, call them straight away, and then plan B was this other device.
0: Yeah, sounds like a good plan. Uh, definitely uh, good to go over emergency situations and, and that sort of stuff. There's a good quote chance favors the prepared. The more prepared you are, the more uh, chances that you're going to have success. I mean, you can't uh, deny, the, I mean, not deny, but you can't. Uh, there's a little bit of fate and destiny sometimes. Sometimes you could be so prepared that just things happen and you know but the more prepared you are the better it is to handle those kinds of negative situations that do occur every so often but definitely so good to be prepared and just for every situation especially like a life or death situation which which could occur and yeah so uh <laughs> yeah did you did you get to the top i'm like man yeah, did yeah. you make Sorry, it how of... far did you go up i'm i'm like i'm so curious that I, yeah, I don't so... i don't even know the whole story yeah I, you don't yeah so
1: we, uh, the reason I wanted to talk about the emergency plan and about conditions and all of that is yeah. is to set the stage that this wasn't uh, a harebrained idea, that we, are, we have some You're well-prepared. We, 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 we prepared as well as we could. Um, but sometimes anomalies, catastrophic anomalies can occur. And that is something that we are aware of, I mean, especially f- in like the mountains. Like freak
0: storms or something that happens. Weather and,
1: can come in storms can change and this is you know anyone who's who's adventured in the mountains know about the um, the inherent risks and some of which we can't mitigate so i started climbing and things were going great i was finding my groove swinging my ice axes into the ice kicking my crampon tips into the ice standing up moving up the route and uh, so on and so forth and things were going pretty well there was nothing out of the ordinary. It was just an afternoon afternoon of ice climbing, and I'd gotten about thirty meters up the route, and I transitioned from the vertical face of the ice to a lower angle snow slope, and this the snow slope was because the the, the terrain itself um, kind of um, yeah leveled out a bit more. So the snow slope maybe like a forty five degree snow slope, and then. Once on the snow slope, the anchor was maybe three or four meters away. So I had just transitioned from the face and onto the snow slope. When And I could see the anchor. I mean, it was right there. And in my mind. You were going to,
0: to clip in on it. That's to what clip you were going in. It's for. kind of like
1: the, you know, make it to the anchor and you're done with the climb. And yeah. then you, you lower down with the rope and you're kind of finished. It's next person's turn to climb. So it
0: was like within a car length. It was like right in front of
1: you. Yeah. And and the hardest and the hardest climbing was already behind me. The vertical, you know, ninety degree ice was already behind me. Now it was a snow slope at forty five degrees. You just kind of like, like nah, no, it's nothing. You got yeah. it. Yeah, and and I mean, of course, you're taking care about you know what you're doing, um, but all of a sudden, my partner Dylan, my belayer below, thirty meters below, yelled ice. And, and and a partner a Blair, like y- you should do that because sometimes ice chunks break off the ice fall, and that's a normal occurrence with the frozen ice fall. Is that it can it
0: can break apart? Was he yelling that ice was coming to you or yeah. to him? Was well, it... it's coming
1: down. It's uh, coming above, from above you. Yeah. So so, I strained to hear him, and at the last moment I looked up, and as I looked up. My entire field of view was ice, ice chunks falling from about a hundred meters above me, and that was that's any ice climber's kind of worst nightmare scenario is to be under a barrage of falling ice,
0: and, and it's uh, not snow, it's ice, like it's hard, ice. hard, like it's rocks, ice. like rocks. What had happened
1: was a uh, hundred meters above us, so almost three hundred feet above us an entire column of the waterfall had broken off and this was this ice column this chandelier this icicle was probably 15 meters in length top to bottom and had a diameter at best of probably 8 feet in diameter so we're talking you know, I haven't done the calculations and I don't know, maybe somebody else could help me with that. But we're talking over a ton of ice that literally broke off from the waterfall. It hit the ledge below it, that was immediately below it, and exploded into a thousand, thousands of pieces and launched off of this ledge and rained down on me that was climbing directly below it and then further down onto my partners who were down
0: below. And, me. and the man above was okay.
1: No, so the man above was back down at the base. He went up, oh, set, built the anchor, yeah. and climbed back and then got lowered back down to the base. And then actually Dylan, um, the guy who climbed first, was was the one belaying me. And who was the one who yelled ice. So it's kind of a, a nightmare situation because you're on this snow slope. Did you know Like when you saw this something was wrong?
0: When like, well when trouble. you
1: when you're ice climbing and you see I mean when your partner yells ice, first of all you, you shouldn't look up because then there's a high or there's a higher chance that a piece of ice is gonna hit you right in the face and then that's gonna cause a lot of damage. But I was when he yelled it, I strained so hard to hear what he said, and then my brain had to process what he said. Yeah. And then once it processed, I had to glance up because if you can if you can maneuver yourself away from the piece of falling ice, you have a better chance of not getting hit than just not looking and maybe getting hit. In this particular case, though, there was so much ice coming down. My entire field of view was ice. There was... I couldn't see anything. Just white. Just White? white, shiny ice falling down all around me. So instinctively in that split moment I let go of my ice axes because the rope was already at the top. I wasn't at that moment in danger of falling back down to the bottom of the to the base of the climb. I let go of the ice axes. I basically just covered my hand my head with my hands and hoped for the best. And you know there's a question in my mind was that the right thing to do should i have done something differently but the next moment like literally just se- seconds later from hearing ice and covering my head with my hands the largest impact in my life like this ice block struck me across my spine at the level of t3 and stretched from shoulder tip sh- to shoulder tip. is it right below your neck Right below the base of the neck, exactly. So I was kind of hunched over, if you will. I tried right. to almost curl up and make myself as small as possible. You know, you don't want to be splayed yeah. out because then you, you're you a larger surface target. area. You're a yeah. bigger target. So I, you know, kind of curled up as best I could. And this was all literally just in split seconds to do this. So I was kind of crouched, covering my head with my hands. And this ice block just, bam, just right across my back. And I know it was, I mean, it was shoulder tip, at least shoulder tip to shoulder tip. So what, what's
0: that? At least just feel like 30 a, inches, a or, lot of pain after that. Like, well, or did you, did you black out or go? Yeah. So I, I was unconscious. So, so it had, immediately knocked me out. Do you remember like the pain of, did it, or you just yeah. remember like it hitting you? Oh, I
1: remember, I remember the impact and what ended up happening was that it flexed me forward. Um, and it flexed me forward because I was kind of leaning forward and it hit yeah. me on my back. Flexed me forward, which ended up causing some of the most damage was that flexing forward. And amazingly, um, but then also really painfully, it just it didn't sever the spinal cord. It didn't break the spinal cord. But imagine getting your spinal cord just stretched yeah. Or just, you know, so rocked, like an impact like that, it's, it was unlike anything I experienced. And while I was unconscious, I can't say that, you know, I was conscious of what was, what was happening, but I remember, unfortunately, vividly, like that horrendous sensation of like the spinal cord being, you know, just completely rocked, you know, and that was a, that was a pretty terrifying, horrible feeling, actually. But then I woke up about 15 seconds later and I- 15 seconds? Yeah. I, uh, I woke up and um, I remember that I was hanging upside down on the rope um, on the face of the climb. Like So I'm hanging, dangling by the rope and upside down. And I have terrible, terrible pain in my spine, my shoulders. I can't breathe right. Um, I mean, for the first probably 30 seconds, you know, I wasn't even so lucid, but I remember my, you know, I remember the pain. I remember basically crying out in agony. And uh, at some point, like pretty early on, after the impact and after waking up, I remember hanging upside down and instinctively checking if I could move my hands and feet because the pain in the spine was so bad I thought I knew I was in serious trouble you like as paralyzed. soon as I woke up yeah. yeah and I instinctively moved my hands and feet and I could I could feel my tendons and li- I could feel it and I thought okay that's that's a really good thing
0: Was um, there pain when you moved though your hand or your feet My hands and my feet not
1: not They're so okay. much specifically in my hands and feet Um, but as soon as I tried to upright myself or use my arms when I tried to lift my arms immediate pain and my shoulders uh, didn't work properly I couldn't really use my arms and I'm still hanging upside down and I still had to upright myself so I'm hanging there upside down and I mean this is like you know it's quite a traumatic
0: moment and so it's and, and you're not really sure, like, how bad the damage is right now. Oh, you're I have just... no idea how bad the damage
1: is. I would only find that out, you know, an hour or so, a couple hours later in the hospital. But I knew I could move my... I knew I could move. I knew I wasn't dead, and I knew I wasn't paralyzed. And miraculously, amazingly, the rope hadn't been cut in the ice fall Because when I let go of my ice axes and made myself into that small um, ball... I weighted the rope, so the rope was taunt. You know, my partner who was below me, hadn't let go of the rope, which is like number one rule when you're belaying somebody is you don't let go of the rope. What, what
0: did he see when when that happened? Did he see the whole thing? Was he? <laughs> yeah, so I only found this out
1: days later when they came and saw me in the hospital, but they, the ice, there was so much ice and it, had, it covered such a large area. That they also themselves had to run for their lives and take cover, and ice wow. chunks like shoebox size of ice chunks were landing all around them. and they took cover in uh, behind a rock outcropping that we had intentionally set up nearby and kind of amazingly, unbelievably, they had they escaped completely uninjured. but the ice, I mean, you could see the chunks of ice all around them. So they were, I mean, it, it, was, it was the situation where it could have been a, easily been a three fatality day. I mean, it was, it was really that type of situation. It was a catastrophic failure of the frozen waterfall to have this huge 15 meter tall, eight feet in diameter, chunk of ice, break off, explode, and all of those pieces rain down right where you're climbing. Dylan, who's been ice climbing for 10 years, had never heard of a, a situation like that, never seen something like that. So anyways, I'm up there, I'm screaming in pain. I don't hear anything else. I don't know if my partners are alive, if they're dead. And partly I think because of the trauma and because of the distance, I couldn't hear anything. So I you know, I yell out to them, you know, are you there? Are you there? And it, I mean, it was like all my effort to get those words out and they finally they they responded that they were there they were okay and i painstakingly communicated that i was seriously injured and i needed to be lowered i needed to get off of the uh off the ice so you know eventually i was able to upright myself you know i couldn't really move my arms i couldn't breathe i felt like my chest had been crushed which in fact it had been um, from the back but from the back from the being flexed forward and uh, what I later found out was that it, it had broken you know four ribs both shoulder blades and three vertebra well four vertebra one of them being the worst was the, the T7 um, your thoracic seven vertebra and when I flexed when the ice hit me and it flexed me forward it burst that vertebral body into like a dozen pieces just popped it with so much force. I did the calculations Mm -hmm. just the other day. Uh, You know, I don't know how big that piece of ice was. I know it was at least shoulder width in length because I had a bruise and fractures from shoulder tip to shoulder tip, so it could have been bigger. Um, But from the elevation that it, the distance it traveled from the elevation where it fell from and it hit me, it was traveling, that piece of ice was traveling over 100 miles an hour when it hit me.
0: And really? just probably a couple inches difference and you would have been gone Then your head. Not maybe, even huh? inches, I mean... Centimeters. Yeah, centimeters, or... yeah. Centimeters, yeah I mean, an inch
1: difference closer it's to my head would have... Um, severed your spinal cord or something. Like would have probably, yeah, probably would have killed me. Not, not even to think about like six inches, it would have hit my neck. Uh, or my head and could have you know I mean there's so many what ifs in this situation that you know I've, I've thought about them but I don't give them a lot of power because they they didn't happen and there's not for me there's not a lot of value in going down that rabbit hole of like what if well, what, what if. if yeah similarly to the what if question is the why question why did that happen well why did it happen well for reasons that we'll never know why that piece of waterfall broke, Um, but it happened because I chose to go ice climbing. You know, I made the decision to go ice climbing. That was, that was decision number one that even put me in that situation. So I feel very responsible for my own, for this accident in the sense of that I chose to put myself in that scenario. You know, you don't think it's going to happen to you like this type of thing, but you know that it's a possibility or you know that
0: a bad accident is possible, you just hope it's not going to be you. But things just happen, though. I mean, you can be the nicest person. You could walk across the street and get hit by a car and die. Absolutely. It's just, some things are just random. It's almost like we need, things like these happen so we learn some sort of life lesson or need it for an experience or something to teach us something.
1: Yeah, everyone wants to, it seems like, at least in my situation, people want want me to learn something from this. They want to try to find a, a reason, why or, or a purpose for
0: this? Is that because we're humans and we try to try to make a purpose, or a reason for everything? Or just about it could just yeah, be can, random? <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I mean, I really take it as random. You know when I think about it, those moments, literally just the moments, the seconds before that ice fell. Was it my ice axe 100 meters below that was the butterfly effect to cause that to collapse? Would it have collapsed if we had not been climbing? What if we hadn't been swinging our ice axes and kicking our crampons into that waterfall, into the rock? Um, I, I think that that could have had a uh, an influence on it. Because ice, icicles, ice flakes, uh, you know, ice flakes, icicles they don't need a lot of force to break apart. Sometimes a feather could make, you know, ice break apart. Would sound
0: help break them too?
1: Sure, sound Sound waves. Sound waves. And that's an interesting point because, so after it happened, uh, you know, eventually after a lot of pain Mm. and everything, my, my partner Dylan lowered me down to the ground you know, while I was still up there, I was able to communicate, like, spinal injury, difficulty breathing, need rescue. I knew that right away. And they could tell from the way that I was acting and the way that I was communicating and, and what they had just witnessed and been a part of, like, you know, something was terribly wrong. So eventually I got back down to the base of the climb very slowly, very carefully. And I didn't know this at the time, but my partner Dylan who was not belaying, Dylan was belaying me and my my partner Scott was already on the phone with Riga with the rescue helicopter the rescue service before I even got back down to the ground because they knew that it was it was going to be serious you know you say you say spinal injury that's and, serious and <laughs> it's serious and and I couldn't I couldn't get a full breath I couldn't you know, it was it was agonizing.
0: How was your legs? Could you feel
1: your legs or walk? Yeah, or... that was actually the really one of the real positive things that pretty much from the rib cage below, no pain, no problems, no fractures, no issues whatsoever. So I could still move my legs, but I had because of the spinal injury, I couldn't I had no strength, I had no core strength because you need your back muscles to create core strength. Yeah. So I couldn't really use my legs very well they
0: worked but I couldn't
1: I was I was really no like good gel, at this
0: jelly point. legs or something, yeah something I was I
1: was really no good at this point I yeah. couldn't do much for myself yeah so they lowered me down but they called in the rescue thankfully the weather at that particular moment or at that time period was was good enough there was cloud cover but the the cloud ceiling was high enough that the helicopter was able to fly below it into the valley and um, they lowered they they flew in assessed us from the air and then came back they left the area then they came back with their doctor on a long cable and lowered her down to the scene and she came up to me immediately and assessed me asked what happened figured it out asked if i needed to lay down in a, in a basket for a rescue, or if I thought I could sit in a, in a rescue seat harness. Well, at that point, laying down flat was not a good option for me because I couldn't breathe when I was laying down. Yeah. I had too much pain. It was, it was a pretty bad situation. So I, I, I opted, I said, let's sit down in the rescue seat. And uh, so that's what we did. They hooked me up, they hooked me and the doctor up to the rescue line, the c- helicopter came back in they they hooked us up and they pulled us out of the of the of the scene right there. Then they, they lowered me down, we set we landed in a nearby field in a snow field, actually on a cross skiing cross country course, and some locals who had seen what happened or had heard what happened stuck around and actually helped get me packaged up in like kind of the whole um, the rescue kit that they have, they started an IV on me, you know, got some basic vitals, kind of took some assessment, put a C collar on me because I had spine pain, you know, in my neck and my back. Yeah. And then, uh, flew me directly to the hospital. So the whole, the whole thing from starting to climb the route to being flown to the hospital was approximately 55 minutes to an hour. Wow, so not long. Not long at at all. No. Amazing. Because, I mean, we weren't deep into the mountains. We were in the back of the valley. So had there needed to be a rescue by foot, it would have been possible. But we had also crossed a, a stream or a river when we had gone in. So really the air rescue was the best way to do it. And so, I mean, one hour or less from injury to being in flight to the hospital my hats go off to the people of the Riga organization. They're really, it's a fantastic organization that saves lives every year. They do a stellar and they, job. And they are most professional, like really highly trained um, individuals who go on rescues every day. And uh, so I'm very, very appreciative of, of the work that they do, not just in my case, but I've I've seen them in the mountains before. And you know that when you see the red and white helicopter flying in that, um, so, you know, something's gone wrong and, uh, you know, someone's been seriously hurt. So you think about that every time you see the helicopter now, not just now. I mean, I thought about that before. I mean, I've worked in medicine, I've worked in ERs and I've worked in surgeries. And so I, I've seen injured people before and, you know, sometimes they come in on a helicopter and, you know, you when you're in the mountains and you see that helicopter, you know, pulling somebody or, or doing something on the side of a, a mountain, you know that the people who are being picked up are in a bad situation. You don't call the rescue helicopter unless things are, you know, pretty bad. Yeah, so that was the accident. I know that was a, a bit of a long story, but it you know, I think it it warrants the the time to be told because it uh, like you yeah, said definitely. before, it was you know, largest, most significant accident of my life and uh, something, um, yeah, that I'm, I'm kind of happy to finally share uh, with well, you and with others. Was it
0: difficult to share it for a while or did you, how did you feel? Um, I mean, also how many surgeries, two, you had two surgeries? Yeah, so the, I got to the
1: hospital, got a CT scan um, it showed that burst fracture T seven T three spinous process was broken. Both shoulder blades, four ribs. So they had to do, um, they had to do spinal surgery to stabilize the T seven that was in a the, lot of in pieces. In the twelve pieces. Yeah, so they put four screws in the two vertebra above. They put screws in the two vertebra. Of, the two vertebra below, and then connected it with rods to, re-stabilize. The curvature of the spine, and to fixate the T seven and the surrounding vertebra so that it could heal. So that surgery happened actually the day after the accident. And
0: those twelve pieces will heal itself. Is that? Those? Well, that was the idea. So we yeah. chose
1: the conservative approach uh, for what's what a burst fracture, and we chose to and when I say we, the the surgeon and I yeah. chose to um, not to just put in the screws and give it time to see if it would come back together. Unfortunately, four months later, upon examination and another CT scan, it showed that that vertebra body did not heal. In fact, what had happened is the disc material from above and below um, had mixed inside the the vertebra with the bone itself and disallowed the bone from healing. And so there was actually a uh, you could say like a silver dollar size hole in the middle of the vertebra that hadn't joined together. So then the second surgery is what they had to
0: do is go in through the chest. Uh, that was just four months ago? Three and a half months ago. Half, yeah. So so about five months after the accident or four and a half months? Yes. Yeah, about five months. The second surgery. second
1: surgery was four or five months. Yeah. Uh, they had to go in through the chest and actually take out the whole vertebra body. Through your chest? Yeah, through the side chest wall. Oh, the side chest. I was yeah. like through like the middle of your chest. No, like, through oh. the side, um, kind of just below the armpit. And what they do is they actually cut out a uh, about a 10-inch piece of rib and then crack open the chest and like spread the ribs open. And that gives them... Wow. And then they deflate the lung. And then that access gives them... Uh, an approach to the side of the spine, and they can approach it there. So I still have, from that surgery, a 10-inch piece of rib missing out of my... 10? Uh, ten, ten, yeah, you can ten, feel it here, yeah. Um, right below the armpit, like there's like kind of a... No,
0: 10 inches? You mean 10, uh, ten centimeters or millimeters?
1: About, maybe it's 8 inches. Or your pinky, about the size of it. No, from here to here. Wow. Yeah, so if you spread eight like inches. a hang loose, like your thumb to your cool. pinky... Like a hang loose. That's about about as much ribbons. And they and take then
0: out. they repair it. They put them together. The twelve pieces.
1: No. So then, what they do is they actually take out. They take out the twelve pieces and they put in a pros- prosthetic oh. vertebr- vertebral body. It's called. It's called an obelisk. It's a de- uh, medical device made by a company in Germany, and it acts as a. Vertebra, and so it's height adjustable. So they take out all the bad pieces, and then they. W- cut out a slot just big enough for it to slide in there and then they can use this really cool tool to adjust the height of it. And so the top of it rests against the vertebra above and the bottom of it against the vertebra below. And so it becomes a prosthetic vertebra that's amazing
0: it's never heard of anything like that (laughs) did you blow your mind when it kind of blew my
1: mind for a couple of reasons one because they told me that they had to cut out a piece of my rib and open up my chest and that (laughs) really didn't sound so great yeah um but also like like just the idea of having a a prosthetic vertebra vertebra, a prosthetic spine was was pretty wild and I asked a lot of questions. You know, I was, I've been in the medical field like over 15 years now, and I've worked in countless operations and taking lots of x-rays. And uh, so it was really, uh, I knew, I, it's one of those I almost knew too much. Yeah. You know, I knew <laughs> I'd seen a lot of spine surgeries, and I've, I've seen that. And having gone through that first one and getting the screws put in, I got to tell you, there's no sensation like waking up from surgery with your back screwed together. That is, oh. I don't wish that on my worst enemy. That is the most uncomfortable thing to wake up and all of a sudden five levels of vertebra are completely fixated and you can't move. Now, I've, I've known other people who've had spinal surgery and have had screws put in. And I, now, unless you've had that done, like you just can't understand what that sensation's like.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine. It sounds sounds gruesome. It makes me cringe just thinking about spinal cord injuries in general just don't sound pleasant. And one thing I was curious, so you had this happen about eight months ago. What helped get you through it? What helped mentally, emotionally? What was some of your like ways to deal with this? I mean, there's got to be a lot going on. You're going like you're an avid rock climber, really athletic, then all of a sudden, boom, You're you're you know what bedridden for for a while or or immobilized or immobilized
1: you... certainly um,
0: it's like what did you do like in instead of instead of you know uh, rock climbing and athletic yeah.
1: well some of the the initially when i was still in the hospital i didn't walk for about 4 or 5 days i was just laying flat in bed yeah. um, my partners who I was who i was with they actually came and saw me at the hospital and i told them you know I want to talk about this from start to finish I want to hear your sides of the story and I want to tell mine and I recorded it all because I I need to know like what happened you know from all angles and I think that in itself like just facing it right away with my partners like let's get down let's talk about it I know it's hard there was a lot of tears shed in that conversation like it was one of the hardest conversations I've ever had in my life to hear them tell me that they thought, you know, that maybe I was dead. Like, you don't want somebody to tell you, like, oh, I thought you were dead. So I think initially, you know, attacking it in that way to be just open up and just face it. Face it. But with my partners, people that I trust, people that I trust in the mountains. Great support group. Great support group. So that's where it started. And then that translated into support from my wife, support from... You know, my parents. My mother flew out immediately. Um, so talking them through, talking through it has been really helpful. Um, I've tried to do some writing um, because I've I've long, um, I've loved to write for a long time. Um, trying to um, not play the why me card not asking the question why because I don't think there's like really good satisfactory answers not playing like a victim not playing a victim you know know, I take responsibility for putting myself in that scenario and um, acknowledging that you know what I was participating in a highly dangerous activity and that dangerous part about it happened that day and um, I think I, I try to have a really balanced perspective about you know about that and not um you know not take it personally because you know the mountains nature doesn't really care about us doesn't really care if we have like doesn't really care if we have a goal or an objective like it's gonna do what it wants does its thing and and you're just a you're just a bystander you're just somebody in the passenger seat who gets rocked so it you know, I try to keep a positive outlook. You know, my recovery has gone really well. And, you know, I've made great recovery. And I've tried to be positive about it the whole time. You know, find other things in life that um, I... enjoy, That I enjoy, that exactly. are less extreme, that bring joy to my life, that bring fulfillment. You know, um, and I've been able to do that, I think, successfully. And you appreciate more of your life yeah I appreciate I mean I really feel like I appreciated life before but now it's like okay you know I do have that second chance what am I going to do with that second chance you know like that's a I think it's pretty standard question so it's been it's been a really good process and uh, I'm really happy to be at the point where I'm at I mean to the point that you and I are sitting here tonight having this conversation I think is proof that um it's worked, you know, that the surgeries work, that, that I've done the good work
0: to get to the point where I can be here and, and talk about it openly. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your story, Tim. It was really, uh, an honor to,